From NPR, supported by the National Endowment for Performing Arts, comes another outstanding contemporary radio production in the Earplay series. This one from March 9, 1980. A radio adaptation of Johanna Glass's play, Canadian Gothic. In Canadian Gothic, the characters speak sometimes to the listening audience and sometimes to each other. This character study uses language of what critics called poetic eloquence and incision to illuminate its tale of an ill-fated love affair and the McPherson family it destroys. It begins with the haunting memories of the mother Natalie and father Jack, a Saskatchewan dentist and his mildly rebellious wife. And then it goes on after the mother's death to explore the love that blossoms between their daughter Jean and a young Cree a North American indigenous man named Ben Redleaf. Sadly, the romance results in tragedy rather than happiness, leading to the conception of a child out of wedlock, the accidental blinding of the dentist, the jailing of the young man, and in the end, a bittersweet accommodation between father and daughter as they face the long, futile years left to them. As you can imagine, this is a powerful drama, perfectly suited to earplay. And now Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program, rebroadcast Canadian Gothic by Joanna Glass from the March 9, 1980 NPR Earplay production out of the University of Wisconsin Public Radio Station. My name is John Lovering. It's my pleasure to be your host for Heirloom Radio, and I do appreciate you listening. Thank you. is produced by National Public Radio and WHA under grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. Play presents Canadian Gothic by Joanna M. Glass. Glass is a Canadian writer born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. After an early career as an actress in Canada and California, she turned to playwriting with a workshop production of her first play, Santaqua, in 1969. Her two short plays, American Modern and Canadian Gothic, premiered at the Manhattan Theatre Club in 1973 and were produced again three years later at the Phoenix Theater. Her full-length play, Artichoke, had its world premiere at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, and was produced at the Manhattan Theater Club in their 1979 season. Artichoke and the double bill of American Modern and Canadian Gothic have been produced at regional theaters across Canada and the United States. In fact, she was the most frequently played Canadian playwright of the 1976 season in Canada. Glass has also written a novel, Reflections on a Mountain Summer, published by Alfred A. Knopf. American Modern was included in Earplay's 1978 season, and now Earplay has asked Ms. Glass to adapt Canadian Gothic for radio. said and done, the town of Cardigan's been good to me. I was born here in the year 1910. My father was a shoemaker who'd emigrated from the highlands. I never had any complaints against this town. Pioneers are hardy stock built it in the middle of the prairie. 
built the schools and hospitals, the stores and libraries, and finally, the university. Civilized institutions for civilized people. I received my degree in dentistry from the university in 1932. Where he was in 1932, having a degree in dentistry, the university was mostly an agriculture school at the time being, as we were in the heart of the wheat country. A little prim he was, and I knew he'd never known a woman. I knew he'd never visited that famous clabbered house on the outskirts of town. I knew he didn't get drunk in the beer parlor, and his conduct was never disorderly at hockey game. After our wedding, I knew, and it nearly killed me at the time, I knew the routine we'd set that first week of marriage was the one we'd follow for the rest of our lives. In choosing a wife, I looked for a woman with spirit. When I met Natalie, I walked her down by the river, that shady spot there by Grant Island. I put my hands on her breasts. She said, tut, tut, Jack, don't you know? God made those for babies. <laughs> and off she ran, laughing, a fine filly of a lass. <sighs> so many things I never understood. What was most attractive became a bone of contention. The spirit he admired before we wed became a thorn in his side by the first anniversary. And I knew the thorn would fester there for the rest of our lives, both of us helpless in our natures to either remove it or ignore it. She never did the things that other women did. The host was put to rights by noon. She could hoe and weed the garden quick as you could say Jack Robinson. Spring cleaning and every other house took a full week. And ours, one frantic day. All the curtains, all the rugs, shazam. Down before breakfast, up again by dinner time. Busy work, she'd say, and bring down the wrath of the neighborhood with those two words. Too much idle time, he'd say. <laughs> I like to do charcoal drawings. I went to the river almost every afternoon, summer and winter, 90 above, 30 below. It gave me great pleasure to sketch and draw there and try to master the arcs of our two bridges spanning the river. The arcs were so hard to get right. I worked like a demon on them, but never did master the exact geometry of those two bridges. I get the one in the foreground just right, but the one upriver behind the first escaped me. Her little fingers at dinner time were blue at first and then beat red. Thirty below, she'd go down to the riverbank with a piece of charcoal and pad of paper. She never learned to sketch with gloves on, although you'd think that would have been the first order of business. I remember frostbite on at least three occasions. All because she couldn't get that second bridge right. My God, what a lot of effort day after day. The truth was, I was ready to go down there and dynamite that damn second bridge. But amazingly, one day, she said... All right, Jack. I guess the time has come to settle for the one. And damned if she didn't sell that first picture right off for $30. Back in those days, I used to work a whole week for $30. The mayor bought my first completed picture. I said... Mr. Mayor, um, don't you notice the absence of something in that picture? No, he said. There's great technique in that one bridge, at least $30 worth, I don't mind telling you. I said, but Mr. Mayor, from that spot on the bank, you can see the Fulton Bridge. Well, yes, I know, he said. Thanks for leaving it out. I expect you'd make me pay 60 for two of them. They say in every person's life, there comes a time when we're faced with a fork in the road. We stop. We consider the two choices. We make our decision. In the third year of our marriage, it happened to us. Nothing monumental caused it. We had a simple conversation. And after that, she went one way. And I went the other. There was a polio epidemic in Cardigan. It was a terrible time. There was fear and panic. And endless prayer. For nearly a year, everyone's conversation was the same. Did you hear? Did you hear? The Ferguson boys in the brace for life. Did you hear? Did you hear? It hit poor Mr. Jameson. He's in a brace for the rest of his life. I had no stomach at all for sick or crippled people. I went to pieces whenever I had to be around them. Every morning during the epidemic, I'd 
cry into my coffee and tell Jack the news from the day before. Oh, really, Natalie, must I face this waterfall every morning at breakfast? Yes, you must. Unless you choose to eat somewhere else. Well, who is it now? The Ferguson boy. Which Ferguson boy? The town's full of Fergusons. You wouldn't want to waste sympathy on one you didn't know. Dougie Ferguson. He's in a brace for the rest of his life. Dougie Ferguson. He's a patient of yours, Jack. He's... He was goalie on the peewee team. We've watched him many times. Oh, yes, Dougie. Little Dougie, yes. Too bad. Jack, listen to me. I'm losing my mind. How can I face Mrs. Ferguson? What can I say to Mrs. Ferguson? The less said, the better. Things are easier dealt with when they're not put into words. He reached for the marmalade and spread it on his toast. I began to get a fixed image of Jack in my mind. I thought of him as a man in a brace, a mechanical man. There was no way to penetrate this thing that he wore. I asked him. I said, Jack, tell me, what is it that makes you harness yourself against life like this? I wanted to answer as best I could because I never, ever wanted it asked again. An awareness, I guess, of a softness at the middle. I don't understand that, Jack. Natalie, a man needs a crust. This bread has a crust. The earth has a crust. That maple there out the window, its bark is its crust. It's all protection for the softness at the middle. Natalie, we're unequal partners. Accept it and leave me be. We never talked of it again. I let him be, as far as a woman's able. I was very happy when our daughter Jean was born. I remember thinking this new child would fill her afternoons for 20 years to come. That just goes to show you how much I knew. I said... Natalie, this will take up the slack of all those afternoons. And she said... There's no slack. There's no slack anywhere. Every hour is taught, and I mean to keep it that way. So the house and the garden and the baby were put to rights by noon. God in heaven, why did I let it gall me so? I wasted myself on petty victories, speck of dust on the sideboard, dandelion among the iris, a wet diaper, the beginnings of a rash... Neglect, I'd say. Too much idle time. Busy work, she'd say. And thereby lost her last remaining female friend in Cardigan. As time went on, she befriended Jean. Every day before I started school, my mother took me past the city limits to the fields around Cardigan. In the spring... We collected wild prairie crocus. I wore dirndl skirts then. I'd lift the whole front of my skirt and fill it with stubby mauve crocus. When the skirt was full and I couldn't bend down anymore without the flowers spilling out, I stopped. She always hummed one song, I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair. <laughs> when I couldn't hear it, I knew I'd strayed too far. We did the same thing with tiger lilies in the summer bringing them home and stuffing them into old honey cans and pickle jars. I never believed when they closed at night, they'd open again in the morning. Why did it do that, Mama? It's magic. Nature's magic. Daddy says there's no magic. He says all magic is tricks. Well, then maybe you'd better ask your dad. I already did. What did he say? Ah, uh, I forget. <laughs> well, until you remember, let's just call it nature's magic. <laughs> In the fall, we went into the fields to watch the mallards. The fields were one big sanctuary then before the bricks and lumber got that far. Isn't it a miracle the way they inform each other when it's time to take wing and fly south? <laughs> I 
wonder how they know. Daddy says it's the most spectacular phenomenon in the world. He says there's vertical migration when they move down the mountains to the valleys, and there's long migration when they move from here to South America. They move on the Atlantic Flyway and the Mississippi Flyway, and they mostly move nocturnally. We know about the roots because of bird banding. Oh, yes. But scientists put numbered aluminum bands around their legs and make records of the flights. Uh But I wonder how so many millions of them can agree on the exact time to go. Hmm. Personally, I think it's nature's magic. spring and the summer and the fall, frittering away whole seasons. And damned if they didn't go out there and skate on the frozen sloughs in January. A block away from our host, there was a spanking new rink my taxes helped to build. He could open the front door of a winter's evening and hear the skaters' waltz wafting up our street. Do you think they'd go to that rink? No, sir. Oh, it was picturesque on the sloughs, all right. But it wasn't safe. Fell in, both of them, ass over tea kettle several times. I remember them coming home drenched with purple lips and joints so stiff they wouldn't move. I remember the stink of wet wool as it dried on the radiator. Well, they didn't have much in the way of medications back in those days. Hell, one way or another, it didn't matter. I'd balled her out for falling in and she wouldn't have the doctor after that. I told her if she ever went again, I'd break her bloody neck. She said, let's wait till then for the doctor, Jack. They're best at mending broken bones. I got to the hospital on the heels of her last breath. She died. The minute they put her under the oxygen tent. And I remember thinking that tent was like the old snuffers we used to use to put out candles. Fortunately, there's gold in dentistry. My father wouldn't have living help underfoot in the evenings, so we hired a woman to do the washing, and we hired a woman to do the cooking. In accordance with his nature, we took care of these things first, and then we mourned. And we hired a woman to come in and do the spring cleaning. What took Natalie one frantic day and the neighbor ladies one full week took that hired woman two full weeks. At a dollar an hour, I remember. I mourn publicly for half a year. I will mourn privately for the rest of my life. But even in that morning, there's bitterness and rancor. For she had handed down that temperament intact. No, not intact. Threefold. And if I couldn't cope with it in the adult, God knows, stirred in a child is a terrible thing. There was no time when I could look across a room and say... He's lonely now. He misses him. He went about his business. His grief was private. And I resented that. It seemed to me that he was free at last. Free from a voice that once asked for his time, his car, his company, his heart. The wonder of my mother's voice was this. It asked. It was refused. It never asked again. It found some other place to sing its song. It didn't seek its answers in other men, clubs, church, civic activities. It never aired its tale of war or any neighbor's back fence. Once refused, it was forever silent. She was just 30 when she died. I knew that in the fields around Cardigan there were still stubby crocus. There were lilies and mallards. Only your song was gone. Well, that's her side of the story. What she didn't know, and what her mother knew too well, was that in her silence she could mock me, accuse me, deny me, defy me. But Jean was artless. It took her years to learn those skills. 
And so she asked and asked and asked again. No soul on earth petitions like a child. I defied him every inch of the way. When he sent me to my room, I made him haul me here, kicking and screaming till we were both bruised. In school, I was called an imaginative child. I loved to read horror stories. Late one night, when I was nine, I attached two cardboard fangs to my eye teeth and went into his room. I woke him up and grinned a fangy grin. For God's sakes, what do you want? I want to bite your neck. (laughs) Ketchup sandwiches. I always thought a sandwich was two pieces of bread with a slice of meat in between. No, sir. Ketchup sandwiches. She had a $200 solid mahogany dresser in her bedroom. Wouldn't use it. Ugly as sin, she said. She went to the store and got some orange crates and built herself a thing with a big organdy skirt around it. Vanity, she said. You're damn right, I said, in no small measure. <laughs> At 14, she was 5 feet 8 inches tall. She took the heels off every pair of shoes I bought her. I took them to the shoemaker and had the heels put back. She refused to leave the house until those heels came off again. She missed three whole days of school in one week on account of that. Well, at 15, on the eighth anniversary of her mother's death, she started going out to the fields again. One day in late June, I saw him at the edge of a slough, crouching down, fiddling with something. His hair was jet black, blue in the sunlight. Hair like that on the prairie could only belong to an Indian. They called us all half-breeds, whether we were or not. I was not. I was full-blooded Cree. On the farms, they said one thing. They said we stole their chickens. In the cities, they said another. They said we could be found lurking in the back seats of white women's cars. I paid no attention. That day, I was setting my traps. She was very young. She had light brown hair. I thought she'd go away when she saw me. Hey, are you setting a trap? That's right. What for? Oh, I don't know. Jackrabbit, I guess. What for? I don't know. It's what I do in June. I mean for food, for fun, for recreation. Uh, Geez, I don't know. It's something to do. (laughs) Well, I guess I have to say I don't like you very much for that. Well, pale face, I guess I have to say I don't give a damn one way or the other. Sassy Indian. Yes, sir, you're getting sassier every day. Go on home, tell your ma you met a sassy Indian. I told him my mother died when I was seven. He said he was sorry. He said his name was Ben Redleaf. I told him mine was Jean McPherson. Well, there you are, he said. He smiled and said... I bet they call you Bonnie Jean. Oh, well... I told her about the time my brother set a trap for Jackrabbit, and when he got there to check it one day, he couldn't believe his eyes. There was a bloody rabbit's foot in the trap, but the animal was gone. That rabbit chewed off his foot and part of his leg in order to get away. I made it as bloody as I could, and I watched that white girl. I told her the blue veins were hanging off the foot, dangling, glistening in the sun. Oh, that crazy white girl. When I finished, her eyes filled with tears, and she said, Oh, Ben, that's a beautiful story. I met him in the fields every day, all that summer, sunshine or rain. I knew he came into the city sometimes, and one day I persuaded him to have a Coke with me at the Sunset Cafe. I don't know what was in my head, thinking he and I could sit and have a Coke in the Sunset Cafe, plain as day. When we were finished and out on the sidewalk, he turned to me and said, Well, Jeannie, I guess we'll never do that again. No, I said, I guess we won't. Just for the hell of it, I walked down 3rd Street one day. I stopped in front of her dad's practice. I wanted to get a look at the old buzzard. I was hanging around there, waiting for a glimpse of him, when I could see the nurse at the desk getting all upset. Suddenly there he was, right beside me in front of the window. Can I do something for you, boy? No, thanks. Nothing. 
got a toothache, have you? No, sir. Uh, just wanted to see how the other half lives. Well, I'll tell you. You go on down to 8th Street there and see Dr. Lutz. He's the one they all go to when they've got a toothache. I didn't have a toothache. As a matter of fact, I've never had a toothache. My mother used to say we had strong teeth from chewing buffalo hide. I used to say, yeah, that accounts for the women. They did all the chewing. What about the men? To that, she'd say, God takes care of Indians in small ways. Then my father would chime in. Yeah, he'd say, in ways so small, nobody's ever noticed. All the kids in town went to dances every Saturday night and guzzled beer in some back room. Indian kids did the same at a place out on Willow Road. I couldn't take her, she couldn't take me. One day I got a bottle of wine and met her in the fields. Guess what we're going to do today? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> How many guesses do I get? Uh, two. We're going to make love. Right, that's one. What's the other? Hmm. We're going to make love again? That's a possible third. What's the second? I don't know. I give up. We're going to dance. Dance? Yeah. <laughs> Rain dance? How would you like a fat lip? Uh, no, we're going to drink some wine and we're going to dance. Uh-huh. To the music of whom? Well, I brought the wine. I guess you'll have to sing. Hmm. <laughs> okay. What'll I sing? I don't know. It's up to you. Uh, how about... Rosemary. Um, no. Mm. How about how about Ramona? I don't think so. Uh, how about one little, two little? How would you like a big fat lip? <laughs> okay. Uh, how about Stardust? Yes, yes. How about that? catalog of virgin crossings. They like to relate with grins and hindsight, first gropings, adolescent clumsiness. Doris Myers lost her virginity at noon one day in her uncle's hayloft and broke out in hives immediately afterward. Sheila Fraser lost hers in a canoe at Waskasu. Evelyn Davidson lost hers in the boiler room of the biology lab. They say, come on, Jean, tell us yours. I am, after all said and done, my father's daughter. I keep my silence. Things are best dealt with when they're not put into words. We would lie in the fields for hours and look at the sky till it nearly hypnotized us. Tell me about your dad. What's to tell? Your dad's a dad. Well, I've got a girlfriend. Oh, he's not that old, but he's hiding a lady friend somewhere. <laughs> he wouldn't know what to do with a lady friend. He knew what to do with your mother. I doubt it. Oh, come on, you're the proof of it. I look at him, and I look at her picture, and I just can't imagine him doing it, you know? Well, maybe it's always that way with parents. I can sure as hell imagine my dad doing it. Has he got a lady friend? Always, always has, always will. He's a real horny old buck. Oh, really? He's yeah. <laughs> always promising to turn over a new leaf. He never does. I made a, up a limerick about him once. Tell me. No, it's dirty. How dirty? It's real dirty. <laughs> That's the way I like him. Jeannie, you're a raunchy little girl. I know I am, but it's normal. Who says? I got a book about teenage behavior. My dad got it for me. He's like that, you know. Whenever there's something he'd rather not talk about, he writes to Toronto for a book. Mm. Anyway, this book says 15's a raunchy age. Come mm on. Tell me your limerick. Okay. There was an old engine from Cardigan. 
who promised to make a clean start again. He said that he would. We hoped that he could, but each squaw that he saw... my father downstairs fixing tea, listening to the radio, taking the newspaper out to the porch. I sat up there and it struck me that we were more than a flight of stairs apart. In our minds, he was my old man downstairs. I was his little girl upstairs. I remembered the events of the afternoon and I thought how innocent he was, really, sitting in the kitchen waiting for the kettle to whistle. Sometimes I wondered if Ben Redley fit into the picture at all. I was not alone in my room all that often. I shared a room with my older brother and my younger brother. Our house was one of those concrete block things. My brother called them urban igloos. Anyway, when I was alone in my room those summer evenings, strange things began to happen in my mind. I started thinking about my future. I'd been drifting along, thinking the future was something you worried about when you were 30. I began to think I'd better look into some kind of government aid to get myself into a trade school. I could take a part of the aid engine, put it back together again blindfolded, so I thought maybe I'd make a good mechanic. But as the summer went on, I really went off the deep end. I began to have all kinds of pipe dreams. I imagined myself as a lab technician. I wore a white coat. I carried around trays of test tubes. I always had a book of litmus paper in my pocket. I imagined all this because I'd convinced myself that this girl was in my league. That just goes to show you what a really screwy summer it was. Sky, sun, tiger lilies, and white people's pipe dreams. On Friday, October 14th, she came to the fields and told me. On Saturday, October 15th, at breakfast, she told her father. On Sunday, October 16th, she boarded the train for Winnipeg. Dad? Yeah? Uh, I'm going to have a baby. I thought he'd fly off in a fit and call me names. I thought he'd leap up, wail, berate me. I, I thought at least he'd turn ashen gray. No, sir, he reached for the marmalade. I think you're overstating the case. I think you misunderstand. No, Dad, you misunderstand. I'm going to have a baby. Jean, you're 15 years old. You are not going to have a baby. If you're carrying a child, you go to Winnipeg and leave it there in a doctor's tail. I watched him spread the marmalade on his toast. I marveled at his steady hand. He didn't look at me, but that he never did. I should have let it go at that. I thought of my mother. I thought of all the times she'd watched his steady hand. I, I had a trump card. I decided to play it. Whose do you think it is? I bit my tongue. I tried to count to ten. I didn't make it. The better question is, whose do you think it is? She didn't answer. She tapped her finger nonchalantly on the chair. How far along? About two months. Well, they're not really babies at that stage. Oh, Jack, I've got a punchline. This one isn't a baby. This one's a papoose. It was not his nature to fly off in a fit. He didn't wail. He didn't berate me. He did turn ashen gray. In retrospect, it was a petty victory. decided the day before that I was to come by around 11. I don't know what was even in our heads to consider such a meeting. Oh, I guess I know. She was 15, I was 20. We were going to stand together, heads erect, a united front. We were going to deliver our message and let the chips fall where they may. 
that worn-out, threadbare message. We were going to tell him that we loved each other. Did you tell him? I told him. What did he say? He already made a phone call, long distance, and I'm to go to some doctor in, in Winnipeg and, and leave it there. Imagine him even knowing where to call. Over my dead body. I, I don't know, Ben. It's a close subject. Where is he? In the basement, doing something at his workbench. She made the call and went right down. She nodded toward the door that led to the basement. I went down the stairs, having to grope because he hadn't turned the light on. He wasn't doing anything, just standing there, hunched over his workbench. He squinted at me for a minute, then he began to mumble. He gave me the finger. <laughs> what could I do? I laughed. Redskin <laughs> bastard laughed at me. Jean was standing at the top of the stairs. She threw her head back and laughed. Her laughter was arrogant. It was the most arrogant laughter I'd ever heard. I picked up the nearest thing to me, a hammer. I threw it at him. It missed him by an inch and hit the water meter. I remember the crash and the broken glass from the water meter falling on the floor. I picked up a wrench. I picked up the nearest thing to me and threw it at him. It was metal and round. It hit him in the face. It was a can of lye. Sirens, howling neighbors, two police cars, and for some reason the fire chief came too. My father was put into the back of the ambulance. Ben was handcuffed and put into the police car. Fifteen years have passed since then, and, and a thousand nightmares. The nightmare is always the same. There is a miniature police car and a miniature ambulance. There are infinite miniature doors hanging open on each. They hang there, gaping. They beckon to me. A stranger pushes my shoulder and says, Go, child, go. I wear metal shoes, and there are magnets under the sidewalk. I'm held there, straining, but powerless. Until dawn. In actual fact, I was pushed. And I went. In the back of the ambulance, I was grateful that they covered my father's face. That evening in the hospital, I sat on his bed and held his hand. Is it still Saturday? Yes. Eight, eight o'clock. Are you crying? Yes. I wonder for whom. All of us. Why did we have lie in the basement? You have an appointment in Winnipeg. Dad, he grabbed the nearest thing. What were we doing with lie in the basement? The sight is gone, Jeannie. But the child is growing. First things first. Get rid of that papoose. Did you hear? Did you hear? She's up and going to Winnipeg and leaving her blind father. Did you hear? Yeah. Doctor ordered it, they say. <laughs> Terrible state of shock she's in. And Lord knows, wouldn't it be, finding an Indian in your basement? Who was he, anyway? Paper says some half-breed from Willow Willow. <gasps> oh, it's a blessing her mother's gone. Did you know her mother? Strange woman. Artistic. Never did a lick of work I knew of. Did you hear? Ben Redleaf was accused of assault with intent to kill. He was sentenced to four years in the provincial penitentiary. Did you hear? Did you hear? Four bloody years is all that savage got. He'll come out again and do the same. Did you hear? Oh, it's the courts, you know, the judges. They're just a bunch of bleeding hearts where the Indians are concerned. My father sold his practice. It seemed he had to sign a hundred papers to complete that transaction. The lawyers were amazing. They'd hand him a sheet and say, sign right there, please. Oh, yes, he'd say, and scribble his name across the middle. Finally, he'd let me guide his hand. The sight was gone. The child was gone. The pride remained a problem. 
He put salt in his tea for the first few days. He put lard on his bread. His meat ended up in his lap until he let me cut it for him. The part in his hair was never straight. His socks were never the same color. Our first caller was the paper boy. Collecting, sir. Three dollars, please. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, right here. Just a minute now. Yes, there you are. That's a five and two ones, sir. Do you have three ones? Oh, yes. Uh, just a minute. I'm sure I... Yes, I think I can. No, sir, you haven't got it. See, here, I'll take this five. Get your damn hands off my money! Gene! Gene! Jeannie, will you come help me? We tried going for walks together during the day, but he wouldn't let me guide him. Oh, she had a running commentary that drove me crazy. This is Mrs. Bradley's house. Remember, they have nasturtiums up their walk. It's very pungent smell. You'll always know the Bradleys by that smell. There's a crack in the walk here where it's buckled. If you veer too far to the right, you'll hit the fire hydrant. Watch it. Some kids left a tricycle here. Hold it. Oh, damn, you stepped in a big, wet dog mess. And after that, we walked at night. And I held her arm. He feathered his nest very nicely over the years. We hired whatever help we needed. We took the train to Banff every summer. We never, ever spoke of Ben Redleaf. I have four Christmas cards in a box upstairs. Unassigned. They say, Merry Christmas, Bonnie Jean, four to go. Merry Christmas, Bonnie Jean, three to go. Merry Christmas, Bonnie Jean, two to go. Merry Christmas, Bonnie Jean. One to go. He came to see me when he got out of jail. We talked for about five minutes. It was around ten o'clock at night. It was twelve years ago. What's that noise on the porch, Jean? Just the screen door, Dad. It bangs in the wind. Ah, yes. Have to get somebody in to fix that. Ben? Ben Redleaf, is that you? Hi, Jeannie. <sighs> Hello, Ben. Is he in there? Yes. How's he doing? <sighs> Pretty well. He's learned Braille. He's He still has pains in his forehead. What have you been doing with yourself? I'm in my second year at the university. How about you? I just can't make up my mind. I've got so many offers. Royal Bank of Canada, Richardson and Sons, they all want me real bad. Ben, what did you do there all those years? Swung a pickaxe every day, kept my back against the wall at night. Oh? Yeah. <sighs> He turned and spat on the honeysuckle bush a second time. He was lean and hard. Oh, my God, he was lean and hard. I didn't dare touch him. Gene, I'm just damn sure I hear something out on that porch. No, Dad, just me. Nothing to fret about. What are you going to do, Ben? Gotta get off his prayer, that's for sure. A lot of talk around the pen about some white man in northern British Columbia. He owns a big lumber camp. Seems he only hires Indian ex-cons. Doesn't pay anything at all, but I hear the food's good. The quarter's fair. I guess I'll get myself up there for a while. And then my father came out on the porch. Gene? Sure you're all right out here alone? Just just fine, Dad, really. Th th there's a chill tonight. You'd better stay inside. Oh, you're such an old granny. There's no chill. It's a very pleasant night. Ah, come with me. That honeysuckle bush just keeps on blooming. Full bloom now? Uh, not quite yet. Another day or two. Ben stood so still. I never saw a man stand so still. And suddenly the screen door banged in the wind. It startled my father and jumped slightly. That's a hell of a nuisance. Have to get somebody in here to fix that one of these days. Then Redleaf tipped his hat and crept away.
kids have it now to look for him wherever they gather in groups. Saturday afternoons, we often drive to Grand Island. I see them crouched along the road, selling beads, moccasins, toy wigwams. I see them on the bus late at night, drunk and mumbling to themselves. I've looked up alleys along 8th Street and seen them huddled there with cheap wine, vanilla extract, canned heat. Sunday mornings, I've seen them vomiting in the park. She's moody and depressed when she sees these things. Nothing I could say would comfort her. I know, and I knew, that her contribution to that scene was better left in Winnipeg. I've looked for him riding at fairs and rodeos. I've looked for him climbing oil rigs in Alberta. I've looked for him picking sugar beets near Lethbridge, cherries in the Okanagan. I've looked for him posing for pictures in borrowed regalia at Lake Louise. The slant of a forehead, the nape of a neck, can make my palms grow wet, can make me ache. There are a thousand dead ringers for Ben Redleaf, but he's gone. It's a shame, in a way, that I have so little tangible evidence of him. There are the four Christmas cards, but there are none of the ordinary mementos, no snapshots, no dried orchid from any high school prom. There is one piece of paper, the receipt from the doctor in Winnipeg. My father keeps it in his strong box upstairs. For some reason, he used my mother's maiden name when he made the call. So the receipt is made out to Miss Natalie Duncan. And it is stamped in purple ink, paid in full. I have very little evidence of my mother either. Her spirit, her vitality have become dimmed by time. My memory of her is like a rumor I once heard and can't quite remember and can't quite forget. Once a year I go down to City Hall to pay our taxes. I always pause at the mayor's office. Well, the mayors have changed several times, but the receptionist is always the same, and she expects me. Mother's picture still hangs there. The riverbank, the water, the one perfect bridge. That damned thing they call spring comes and goes before you notice it. And it's heat, heat, heat. Yeah, with no let up in sight. Not much better out here than in the house. Not much. You don't hear a single leaf moving. I've been thinking about this summer. We've gone to Banff for 14 years now. Seems to me we're in a hell of a rut. I'd just as soon stay here if you would. Oh, I don't know. The mountains, the maritimes, all the same to me. It's just a different smell so as a hotel to hotel. It's you I think about. That's all the same to me too, Dad. And I used to think you'd find a bow on one of those holidays. <laughs> if you look for a bow, I guess you can find one. Yeah, I guess so. I used to think about moving too. So did I. I think the time has come, Dad, to settle for Cardigan. Yeah. After all said and done, Cardigan's been good to us. Everything's changing, though. I heard on the radio families move an average of once every four years nowadays. Mobile society. Yeah, I wonder if it stacks up any different in the long run. How so? Well... Might be easier making your mistakes and leaving them behind. In the old days, we just piled them up in one place and scratched a living off the top. Don't you think you do that whether you move or not? I guess so. Caught some pain tonight. Oh, it's just a tad. 
Yes, I'll take a couple of those new pills and go to bed. Get the right bottle. No, no, here, I'd better... Never mind. No, never mind. I know which ones. It's all aspirin anyway. No, Dad. These new ones are pink. Pink, yellow, red, green. The pharmacist's artistry is wasted on me. Dad, I taped safety pin on the lid. All right, all right. I'll feel for it. They play their little games. My gullet knows it's all aspirin. Will you lock up? Yeah. And you better check the windows. You never know, it might... I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. But you never know. Better to be safe. Right, right. I'll close them. Good night, Dad. Good night, Jeannie. Canadian Gothic by Joanna M. Glass. Susan Clark played Jean. John Randolph was the father. Dolores Sutton was the mother. And Jeff Goldblum played Ben Redleaf. The music was composed by Herb Pilhofer. The play was directed by Daniel Freudenberger and produced by Marv Nunn. Canadian Gothic was recorded in Los Angeles by Earplay. Radio Drama Production Center for Public Broadcasting. Play is made possible by grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. This is NPR, National Public Radio.